0: Good afternoon. It is uh, kind of an in-between time. We just, in God's providence, we finished the book of Ephesians last week. And in two weeks, I think it is the 16th, we'll be starting the book of Galatians. And then, in God's providence, the two weeks that we have off from verse-by-verse study falls on today, which is known as Palm Sunday. And then next week is, of course, the resurrection. And so today we're going to look at what is known as Palm Sunday or other words, other titles to use is the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The, why do they call it Palm Sunday? Well, from the Gospel of John, the, they cut palm branches down and laid them down before Jesus as he entered the city gates. And why do they call it triumphal entry is because the crowd was hailing Jesus as the king as he entered into the city. So those are simple titles given to this day, so we, you can call it Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry. But this is one of the events in the life of our Lord that's recorded in all four Gospels. Um, the Crucifixion and the Resurrection of course are, but not everything in, say, Matthew is found in John. And so the Synoptics and John's, uh, John's Gospel often have different purposes, therefore there's different threads of thought. But this event, the Triumphal Entry Palm Sunday, is recorded in all four Gospels, and I think that shows you the significance of it. And so our text today is going to be primarily Matthew, if you would turn to Matthew 21, and the, the text that's going to frame up our thinking is 1 through 11, but I have a lot to get out of my system, so I hope you're ready. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Here's another, this text of ours here, 1 through 11, is another text in this Gospel of Matthew that points to or proves that Jesus is the rightful King of Israel, that He has a right to the throne, that He is God's King to sit on the throne. He's not only the King of Israel, He is the King of the world. And so here's another text in this Gospel that points us to that truth. Now... For an American to come to an understanding of monarchy or king or queen, it's hard for us sometimes because we're a nation that began in rebellion against a king. We we threw out the English king, right? We didn't want any king, and so we established a government that's representative, and we purposely don't want a king, and so we really revolt against such an idea. But it's different for God, it's different in other places of the world, and God is He is the king. He is the king of heaven. He has a kingdom of which he reigns over, and and there's different aspects to his kingdom, but there is the kingdom of God, and he is king. So in order then for us to understand the significance of Matthew 21, 1 through 11, which is our version of the triumphal entry, I think we need to recall briefly, but enough, of Israel's history. And I want us to walk through this kind of like skipping. We don't want to take our time and look at all the rocks, but we're going to skip through here to make some ground. But I want us to see why Matthew 1, or 21, 1 through 11 is so significant, not only to Israel, but to the church, to us, and for eternity. And so I want us to Settle down and think with me and follow me along here. As you know, God, back in Genesis 12, chose Abram, who would later be called Abraham, to become a great nation. He says to Abraham in 12.3 that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The nation will become a reality through Abraham's sons, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, whose later name is changed by God to Israel. And by the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Israel's family consists of 70 persons, and they are residing. Remember, there was a drought, there was a famine, and so Jacob went ahead of his people. God sent the rest of the Israelites down into Goshen, Egypt, and there were 70 persons in total. And there, by God's providence, they spent over 400 years in slavery to Egypt. And while they were there, they just grew in number. And when God raised up Moses in the first part of the book of Exodus to deliver them, they had grown to over 600,000 men of fighting age. In fact, it was 603,550 men 20 years and up who were able to fight as warriors. They began with 70. In 400 years, they have over half a million warriors to fight. It is estimated that those are just the men 20 years and older, it is estimated that the total population of Israel at the time of Moses could have been as up to 2 million people. If that's a little high, maybe a million and three quarter. So the nation, God's faithfulness to produce a nation of Israel is shown in the first book, in the first part of Exodus. And as you remember, God did great powerful feats to destroy Egypt and to deliver Israel from the bondage, the ten plagues, found in the book of Exodus and God himself by a cloud and by a pillar of fire led out his people from Egypt and eventually into the land that he promised to Abraham Isaac and Jacob known as Canaan God at the foot of Mount Sinai gave them laws and he continued to give them laws through the book of Leviticus he gave them laws to govern their everyday life and their worship and he ruled over them God did He protected them. He provided for their every need in the early days. If you remember, manna from heaven for 40 years, water from a rock, whatever they needed, God provided. He fought their battles. In fact, if you remember the last great event of the Egyptian troubles is God drowned the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Now, Moses in the book of Deuteronomy prepares Israel to take the land. And I'm just going to rifle off some of these verses so that you hear what's going on. So this is, this is now Moses talking to the second generation who's about to go into the land to take it because the first generation was unfaithful and they wandered for 40 years. God, through Moses, and Moses is going to prepare Israel to take the land, says in Deuteronomy 1.30, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw, the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way in which you have walked until you came to this place. Moses continues in Deuteronomy 3, verses 21 through 22. I commanded Joshua, Moses is talking, at that time, saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. They defeated two kings outside the Canaan as an example of what he's going to do when they go into Canaan. What God has done to these two kings, so the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms in which you are about to cross. Do not fear them, for the Lord your God, now listen, is the one who is fighting for you. That's a constant thread throughout the Torah. God is the one fighting for you. God God will do the battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and 8, Moses continues to to remind Israel... Of what God has done for them. He says for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God. Whenever we call on him. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law. Which I am setting before you today. The privilege of Israel. They have the laws that come from a righteous God. God is protecting, guiding and providing. He does their battles for them. They are his people. He is their God by his doing. Now, as we move forward in time, Israel takes possession of the land. And for the next 400 years, which is primarily the whole book of Judges, covers 400 years now, we're moving forward. God rules over his people. They constantly disobey him. They're made subjects to the Philistines. They cry out in repentance. God raises up a judge to rescue them. And that's the cycle of the book of Judges, 400 years worth. Samson is an example of that. Samuel, which he is the last of these judges. It is at this time, which is about 1050 B.C., 3,000 years ago. The people of Israel showed the darkness of their corporate heart. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 4 through 7, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, talking to Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. So they're asking for a human king like all the other nations is rejecting God's kingship over them. And God has been their king for over 400 years. After 400 years of their existence, Israel has a human king for the first time like all the other nations around them. They chose Saul. He's head and shoulders above everybody else just like we would, right? We want the biggest, baddest, good-looking dude to go before us, right? They chose Saul, he failed miserably because he did not obey God, he did not love God, and God rejects him. In 1 Samuel 13, 13 13-14, Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Now the Lord would have established, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not. Endure, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 26, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. To whom the Lord chose for himself, who God appointed, of course, is David, the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. In fact, the Lord made a covenant with young David. As you know, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and verse 16 speak of this known as the Davidic covenant. You have the Abrahamic covenant. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Okay, Here's one of the major covenants of God. It says in 2 Samuel 7 verse 13, making a promise to David, he says about future descendants, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 says, your house, David, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes a promise to David that he would have a descendant to sit on the throne of Israel as king forever and ever and ever. Now the throne of Israel was appointed reserved for the house of David, as we just read. No other line had the right to reign over Israel. This is an eternal covenant and never-ending covenant to this very day for all eternity. This covenant is binding, as is the new covenant. Fast forward our time now for the next 400 years plus, Yahweh remains faithful though Israel proves to be unfaithful time and time again. The kingdom is divided after Solomon's licentious, godless practices and ways. God tears the kingdom apart, but not till after Solomon dies. David's gone. There's the northern kingdom, ten tribes, and one reserved for David's house because God made a promise to David. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the line of David, Rehoboam. Jeroboam is not so good. He's not even a son of David. He has no right to be there. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and removed the ten northern tribes from Israel. They're gone, taken away. Assyria did that. In 586, the third, of a, a, the third wave of exile, in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians removed the southern kingdom, the Jews from Judah, which includes Daniel and his comrades. Okay. They're removed in 586. They are removed for 70 years. The Lord brings Judah back, the southern kingdom back into Israel in the time of, in your Bible books of Ezra, Nehemiah. That's the rebuilding of the wall, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple. Because Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city and destroyed the temple of God. Ichabod. But at this time of history now, you're in the middle of 5 BC, getting closer to 4 now. 490s and 500 BC. At this time, Babylon ruled, followed by the Medes and the Persians. In 327 B.C., the Greeks, Alexander the Great, conquered the world by 327. He died. His four generals now have taken over the the world. It's parceled out, including Israel, including Palestine. All this is to say the Jews, since Nebuchadnezzar's exile, has not had a Jewish king over it, though God made a promise to David to have one sitting on the throne. right? When Daniel was out, there was no Israel king sitting on the throne ruling independently. There has not been an Israeli king. There has not been a Jewish king to this day. To this day. After Alexander eventually comes Rome and the many different Caesars and the emperors, they rule over Palestine, over Canaan, over Israel. Okay? Now, By the time the first century comes along in the birth of our our Savior, our King, there is, by God's common grace, there is an anticipation within certain groups of Israel. And there is this this hope of a coming King, a coming Messiah, who is coming as a conqueror. That's, That's in their literature. You start to see that. There is promises in the Old Testament that point to that, and there is a group of israelis who are expecting this there are there. remember simon the zealot is one of the disciples well the zealots were trying to help god along and they would often come behind a roman soldier with a shank and shank him in right between the ribs into the lungs and walk away and they would terrorize the roman soldiers in jerusalem trying to dispel the gentile dogs from israel right so you have the zealots and I think a lot of us are more like zealots than we are like Jesus, so, but praise God, he chose a zealot to be a disciple, which gives us hope, (laughs) right? It gives us hope, right? But all this to say, this anticipation of this king, this messiah who would come to deliver by destroying comes to a point and in God's timetable it now has reached its moment. In Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God, when the time st- struck midnight, if you will, when the, when the clock of God came down, tick, 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 boom, now it's time, and he sent his son. And he sent his son not only to redeem us, not only to die on the cross, but to be the king. His rightful place is the king of the earth, the king of the universe, the king that all, to be king over all that belongs to God. He came to establish that. Not only redeem us, but to reign over us as king. Okay? And so God sent his son. God in Jesus had sent his king, which is quite fascinating. God in Jesus had sent his son king. Remember how this all started when Israel rejected God from being their king. I want a man to reign over us like all the nations. Well, God gave them what they wanted. He made a promise to David. He's going to fulfill it by becoming a man himself. So God is still going to reign over his people eventually as the God man, right? But what's really fascinating is they rejected Yahweh and Samuel Did they not also reject the king when they said, we will not have this man reign over us, when they rejected Jesus Christ? The Jews are doubly cursed because of their rejection of God. Now, he doesn't abandon them, though they abandon him. There's future yet. But it is fascinating the grace of God who's doubly rejected by his chosen people and yet he's committed to reign over them and he will. And the millennial kingdom is coming. It's glorious. Absolutely glorious. God cannot break his promise to David. The gospel of Matthew is primarily written to prove, to show that this to his Jewish audience that this Jesus, that's the, the, the theme of this gospel, this Jesus is the one promised. He is the, the Messiah King. He has the right to the throne of David. He is God's King. Therefore, he is to be followed and served by you and me. Is he our King? Well, as, think it now. This, this thread that goes through Matthew. If you have your Bible there, and I thought it would be best to do it this way. I just want to skip like a rock through the pond there, right? In Matthew, look at chapter 1, because this book primarily is to present Jesus Christ as the, the rightful king. Okay? Now look at chapter 1, verse 1. The record, the, the gospel begins with the genealogy. Why is genealogy important? Because the rightful king had to be a son of David. And obviously it's right there in verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. The son of David, son of Abraham. And then he traces it down through all the way to verse 17. To prove to the Jews that Jesus has the legal right to sit on the throne. Okay. Now, when you come to chapter 2 of Matthew, look, this is just amazing. I love this. Um, chapter 2, 1 through 5, look at this. This again is to prove to the Jewish audience that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Herod the king, that's a misnomer. (laughs) Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right? This king who's sitting named Herod has no right to the throne. It belongs to the son of David. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? The one who is the son of David. Look what he sees right here, the Magi, verse 2. For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. The one born king, verse 3, when Herod the king, emphasis, heard this, he was troubled. Yes, he was. He was troubled deep in his spirit because he knows what this means. In all Jerusalem with him, because when Herod's troubled, everybody else is troubled, right? Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah would be born and that Messiah is parallel to the king of the Jews, born in verse 2. So Messiah, same as king. Verse 5, notice what they say. They quote Micah 5:2, and they say that the in Bethlehem of Judea, for this would has been written by the prophet. So again, the one born King is the one born in Bethlehem of Judea. Jesus is born in the right place. He's of the right lineage, he's born in the right place. Now in chapter 9, I'm just skipping through here, remember like a rock on the pond. Chapter 9, verse 27, I believe it is. Every once in a while it shows up and leaks through the passage where the, the, the people who are crying out to the Lord, they identify him in this way here. In verse 27, notice what it says here. And Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, blind, Crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. That's a key phrase. They, these people cannot see, and yet they can see that he is the son of David. God has done that. God has opened their eyes. God has proven to their heart that this one that they are following, though they cannot see physically, he, they know him to be the son of David. They know him to be the Messiah. Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 16, just a couple more here. This is Peter's confession. Look at what it says here. Now remember, this is all in line of Israel's history and God's promise of a king. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Notice prophets. Others, still Jeremiah, were one of the prophets. That's not good enough. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? There's the question for you and I. Who do you say that he is? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Well, this is recorded again as, as another evidence that points to this person, Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. These different people are identifying him as such. Son of David, the Messiah, son of the living God. Um, he's of the right lineage, born in the right place. These people are recognizing him, identifying him. It's fascinating. Matthew 27 Please, this is after our text, of course. But Matthew 27, just one more after this one. Matthew 27, verse 11. This is now he's on trial. Verse 11, he's, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? That's pretty point blank. I wonder what he's going to say. Well, there it is. Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. I am the son of David, I am the promised one, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. It doesn't get any clearer than that. He is the Messiah, he is the promised one. Then, of course, in Matthew 27, 37, in the placard that's over his head as he hung to the cross, and you'll have to come Friday to see more about that, right? Our Lord hangs there, and the placard over his head is this. Here's his crime, right, in verse 37. It says... This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's his crime. Well, that's true of him, you see. That's fascinating. But all that to say, then, as you come to our passage in Matthew 27, or 21, Matthew 21, as you come to the triumphal entry here, our passage, is another reason to believe that Jesus is the rightful king, and therefore we must submit to him and we must serve him. And there's gonna, I'm going to break this up real quickly in three parts. There's the preparation for his entrance in Matthew 21, 1 through 4. There's the presentation in his entrance in verses 5 through 7. And finally, there's the proclamation in his entrance in verses 8 through 11. Let's read through this real quick, and then we'll break through. Um, Matthew 21, verse 1 and following to 11. When they had approached Jerusalem, they had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Verse 5 Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, the first section we want to look at in verses 1 through 4 is the preparation for his entrance. In verse 1, notice when he approached Jerusalem. Now, the Lord had been to Jerusalem before in his ministry, but not, not like this. It's, it's now his hour. It is now the time. It is now the time that's predetermined by the Father. This is the Sunday before the Friday crucifixion. And he comes with the purpose of making himself known. He is pressing the issue here. He is forcing his opponent's hands, if you will. He is not letting them no longer hide in the bushes and murmur amongst themselves and ask, Who might this be? We're going to have to find a way to kill him. He's going to force the issue by coming to them very publicly. And so he comes in this way. He's pressing the issue. They're going to have to decide for themselves and for the nation, the leaders will, who is this? And if you look at verse 2 and 3, the Lord sends two of his disciples to find these animals which are prepared for this purpose. Is this purely omniscience? God just, Jesus just knows that there's two animals tied in Bethphage waiting him and he just knows that because he can look down the corridor of time and see it? Or is this more than that? Is this sovereign decree? Is this sovereign design? I'm more of the latter. I think it's designed because verse 4 tells us this was to fulfill what the prophet said. It's more than merely just knowing the future. It's knowing the future because the future is predetermined. You see, that is a little bit different. So then in verse, if you look here now in verse 4, when they go to find the animals, the, the, the colt and the mama, verse 4 says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Verse 5 then, he quotes uh, our text of Zechariah 9. This is predetermined. This is pre-planned. The preparation for his entrance is the Son of God coming in full submission to the plan of his Father. You see? Because it's pre planned by who? God the Father had sent his Son on a predetermined mission. And it was a mission that was determined by the Father before the foundation of the world. This is something that God designed before there was time. God chose his Son to be the Redeemer before time. In First 1 Peter 1:18, 1, 19, he he chose the Son to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant before time, because God is outside of time; he's not bound by time. He can and does predetermine these things. The Son has come in full submission to the Father's plan. And so to fulfill what the the prophet said in Zechariah 9, there are two animals tied up waiting for Jesus to come and use them for the purpose. It's fascinating. Um, The major aspect, a major part of this plan of God, this mission of God for the Son is to establish the Son's throne, the Son's kingdom, okay, Jesus 4.34 says it like this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The son came to do only that which the father told him to do and to only say what the father said to do and to accomplish that which the father gave him to accomplish. The son came in full submission to the father and his plan, his life, his works, his death were all predetermined by the father. John 5:30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Wow. In John 12:27, the will of God is to come to this hour of not only entrance into the city, but all the events that take place in the next few days that, that culminates in, well, kind of culminates on the cross, but Sunday morning in the resurrection, the suffering that is coming in john twelve twenty seven Jesus says, "Now my soul has become troubled because he knows it's time. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. You see, Jesus came into time took on flesh, not only to be our Savior and Redeemer, He came to be our King. And it's, being, it's to fulfill the plan of God. It's predetermined by God. In Acts 4, 26-28, the kings of the earth took their stand. He's quoting Psalm 2. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together, this is after the resurrection, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen now, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And the Son came in full submission to that purpose. This plan goes to the cross, but it's also to establish The throne, his right to the Davidic throne. And so there is a young cult, according to verses 2 and 3, divinely appointed for the Messiah's entrance into the city. And the prophet Zechariah, which he prophesied approximately 500 years before Christ, he prophesied about this moment. And this is the preparation for his entrance, which leads then to verse 5 and the presentation in his entrance this is just fascinating look at five through seven say to the daughter of zion behold your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey even on a colt the foal of a beast of burden he's quoting zechariah nine in the context of zechariah nine we won't turn there for the sake of time but in the context of zechariah nine He is prophesying against the surrounding nations around Israel where God is promising to destroy Tyre, Sidon, and the Philistines. He commands Israel in the midst of that context to rejoice because your king is coming. Your king will reign over all the other nations and according to Zechariah 9.10, he will make peace. In that context of destroying the nations around Israel and coming to make peace, this text is being quoted by Matthew, who's under the inspiration of the Spirit, to say Jesus Christ designed that. The, the design of the father was for the donkey to come, a beast of burden, the son to sit on this meek and lowly animal to fulfill what Zechariah 9, 9 was saying, that here comes your king in the midst of the nations that surround you and he's coming to make peace. He is the prince of peace. He is coming to make peace. It says this in Zechariah 9, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. What is he talking about there? He's removing the instruments of war and he says and he will speak peace to the nations, plural and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That prophecy is what's being fulfilled here in Matthew 21, verse 5. In other words, how do you know, Israel, that this great king of peace is coming? How do you know he's here? Well, I'll tell you why. He's entering Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. That's Fascinating. He comes not on a big, powerful, high-prancing stallion or a golden chariot, He doesn't come even with swords or weapons. He comes on a donkey. and Not only a donkey, but on a colt, a foal. And according to Luke, it's a foal that had never been sat on before. Which is kind of a whole other version of Jesus in this way. He even controls the tendencies of a young colt. I've been on a lot of young colts before, and they don't want you there. (laughs) Right? But Jesus didn't have a problem, right? Because he is Lord over creation. He can say to a cult, hey, just carry me. Let's fulfill the prophecy. Carry me through the city, right? He comes on a donkey on a colt, which is just fascinating. What is then the picture, according to verse 5, that's being presented to the readers and what Jesus was doing when he was doing this, what is the picture before us? Why does God choose such a lowly beast of burden to present his king? What is the impression on us, right? God intentionally reveals the true nature of his king. Look at verse, middle of verse 5. You see, at least my New American Standard says, He is gentle and mounted on a donkey. This is entirely different than what the Jews were looking for. Or even you and I would be looking for. The Romans are powerful and brutal. How are they overcome? God says, by the one who enters on the foal of a donkey. This is your sign, Israel. Behold your king. Right? Now, don't we like to follow the best? Yes, we do. We like when our football team wins the Super Bowl right yeah we made the right choice man right we didn't choose the Raiders we chose the Chiefs. (laughs) right Um, because because that kind of you know if if my team would win the Super Bowl you would know about it (laughs) right because I'd be hard to live with right (laughs) we like to choose the winner that's why Israel chose Saul as their first king he was head and shoulders above and they want that big and strong and powerful Right? We want we don't want someone who's like a little old grandpa staggering around who can't speak words, right? That doesn't do much for our psyche. That doesn't do much for my American pride, does it? I mean let's be honest here, right? Speak to me, right? We don't like that. Right? Put a man in there. This guy needs a vacation. Right? That's just how it is. Because who in their moxie wants to follow that dude? I want a, I want a Navy SEAL, man. Let's get after it, right? Where's Alexander the Great? That's who I want to follow. Right? But look at what God does. He shows up with no stately form, Isaiah 53 says. He wasn't even handsome, right? He's probably short and, well, whatever. (laughs) Right? He didn't have a stately form. He wasn't the pick of the litter, no matter what you want to say about him. Because the way you want to say it is for yourself, not for him, right? Because he shows up in this. The stature of humility. That's fascinating. He says to Israel, to a nation that has been oppressed for over 500 years, looking for a deliverer, and the riding on the donkey is God's sign to them there he is. No, no, that's not him. (laughs) Right? No, that's him. That is him. He is gentle. Another word could be meek. The donkey symbolizes, it's like a parable, right? How lowly and meek he is. Now, he's not weak as in impotent. He's not arrogant. He's not proud. He's not braggadocious. He's not coming in regal or majestic glory, though he certainly is worthy. This is Philippians 2 in its finest, right? He says, I've set aside my my prerogatives and my glory in order to come to be a servant. Here he comes, a humble king, not a regal majestic one. There is a time coming, though, isn't there? When he comes in a very different manner, the manner we more like, (laughs) right? He'd be on a white horse, and he's got a sword in his hand. Yeah, he's from Scotland somewhere, I'm sure. Matthew 25, listen to Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Very different than this text. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's the second coming of Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians it speaks of the same time and it says in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians 1, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed uncovered from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Glory, right? Sign me up, right? When he comes, verse 10 of Thessalonians, he says this. When he, I love, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He's coming in such a fashion other than his first coming. And when he comes in his second coming, it's with the glory of the angels, the glory of his Father and radiant, majestic, regal glory And he's coming to be marveled at. We will be stunned. We will be shocked at how majestic, how radiantly beautiful is the Son of God, the King. But in his first coming, he comes on a donkey. He comes on a colt of a donkey. Wow. Very opposite, very different. And the presentation that we're looking at here in verse 5 is that the king is coming to you on purpose and he, his nature is gentle as is proven by his mount, the colt, the donkey. So his, his, his uh, presentation here is just in line with the rest of the gospel in that Jesus Christ came in a humble fashion listen to some of this Matthew 9:36 He looked out over the people after he healed many and cast out demons 9:36 seeing the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd Someone so glorious and yet he has concern for us who are lowly That's awesome Matthew 11, 28, 29, very familiar text. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle, same word, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is the nature of our king that he is humble and meek and gentle. And the older I get, the more I appreciate that. (laughs) and the more I want to be like him. Matthew 19, his meekness is shown. Listen to this. This This is glorious. Matthew 19, 13 through 14. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples, young bucks, you know, rebuked the children. It's like, get out of here. You're bothering the king. You're bothering the master. But Jesus said, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Is that not glorious? The king is like that, and those who make up the kingdom are like that. The the proud will not enter the kingdom of God. I guarantee you they will not enter the kingdom of God. Because he brings low, and he resists the proud. He says, for I am gentle and humble in heart, for you will find rest for your souls. Awesome. Let the children come. And in Matthew 20, would you look there with me, please? Just the the text before our text in Matthew 20, verse 24. This is where you remember the mother of one of the disciples came and said, Hey, by the way, Jesus, make sure that my boys are on either side of you when you come in your glory. So she had expectations of some powerful displays, you know, and some, you know, some perks, right? Show me the bennies, you know. Um, So she wants to make sure her sons, like a good Jewish mama, she wants her sons in those places. That's verses 20 and following. When you come to verse 24, listen to what it says or see. In hearing this, the 10, the other 10 Besides the two, became indignant with the two brothers, verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercised authority over them, verse 26, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your doulos, your slave, verse 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. Give his life a ransom for many. Man, this is the meek and lowly king who's entering Jerusalem on a donkey. In 20 verse 34, look at what... This is after the... the, There's some men who cried out in verse 30 of chapter 20 there. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus asked him, What would you like me to do for you? In verse 32... Verse 33, they said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. In 34, he says, no, I don't have time for you. I'm the king. No, he didn't say that. Look what he says. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. I want a king like that. Don't you? Yeah. We all want a king like that. Well, there he is. I'm glad you want one like that. There he is. Right? Behold your king. Israel, So this is your king, Israel. Take a good and careful look at him. Look at verse 6 and 7 of our text. verse Chapter 21, verse 6 and 7. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. Verse 7. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. And then verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road and here's the proclamation. We go from preparation to this humble presentation. Now here's a bold proclamation. Look at what it says here. The people were moved with a passion to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. But look at what their response is in verse 8. It says there that most of the crowd Well, what crowd are we talking about? If you went back to 2029 20, Look what it says there, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Most likely, it's in the thousands of people. Some have even estimated tens of thousands of people. Because remember, it's Passover season. The Passover's coming up quickly. And so a lot of pilgrims come, Jewish pilgrims come from around the world to the Passover. So there could be hundreds of thousands of visitors to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the crowd is massive, it's huge, it's large. And in verse 8, most of the crowd spread their coats on the, on the road. This was showing that they were preparing for his entrance. They were showing by cutting the palm branches. We, we know they're palm branches from John 19 though it says cutting branches here so they cut palm branches laid them on the ground they took their coats and their cloaks laid them on the ground it was a sign that this person who is entering in is of a of a of a certain level he this is a king this is how you treat someone special in 2nd kings i think it is jehu they laid coats and palm branches before jehu as he came to the temple Okay. So it's very it's it's a it's a thing that they would do. And so here they are laying down on the road to show how important this person is who is traveling. And it's most of the crowd. So you're you're talking thousands of people who are doing this. And when you get to to verse 9, It says the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed. So now you have crowds ahead of him, probably coming from Jerusalem as they heard the commotion and those that came with him from Jericho. So you have massive crowds coming and the Lord's in the middle on a donkey and all that noise and that little colt doesn't buck him off. That's pretty cool, right? Um, That horse, if you were doing that, he would buck you off. But because the Lord is the Lord of creation... The fool just stays the course, and all the commotion, that's my point, all the commotion, it is loud. In verse 9, it says they were shouting. They were shouting loudly. Can you imagine tens of thousands of people in a fr- religious frenzy as they're ex- they are expecting this one to be the deliverer like Moses? They think he's coming to conquer, and so there's a frenzy going on, Right? And so this, they're exclaiming this, they're, they're proclaiming this. And the palm branches that go down before them, it, res, it resembles Revelation 7, If you, it, I know Max knows this, 7, 9. Right? After these things I looked in Revelation 7, 9, and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands signs of salvation and victory and peace they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb you see they're just they that's just what they did in the middle east in israel so they are acknowledging by the palm branches right in their coats that this, this they're 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 hoping this is their messiah now they're preparing for the passover what, what is the Passover commemorating? Moses coming and delivering Israel from Egyptian bondage. And now here comes the Messiah who's coming to do the same in their minds. So you can just imagine the frenzy. It, it, it's a fever pitch. And the anticipation is growing. And there's the great crowd that comes behind him. And there's one that goes before him. As they come towards the city... And and the way the the verbs are, they're continually cutting these branches and they're continually shouting this proclamation. And notice what they're proclaiming in verse 9. They're proclaiming what it says in Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. And he says, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna basically means save now. Lord, save. Lord, act now and save. That's the idea in the Hebrew, right? It's to to act now in deliverance. It tells you what they're expecting, okay? So as as the crowds are proclaiming this, Hosanna to the Son of David, at the same time, it is this praise. Not only save now, deliver us, but it's praise to the Son of David. They are saying this in their minds. They don't understand all that they C, because the donkey should have been a clue that he's not coming to do what they had hoped he was coming to do. But they are caught up in a frenzy and they're crying out and, pro- and proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. They didn't understand his meekness. Therefore, they thought he was coming to save them from Rome physically. They weren't interested in being saved from their sin, but that's why he's coming because Friday he will be crucified for their sin and they're praising him they proclaim him as the son of david he is they are recognizing and proclaiming him as the messiah king and what they are shouting is written down in psalm 118 25 through 26 we won't go there but it, the psalm of 118 basically is a psalm that speaks of god's salvation his rescuing of his people when they pray and he's rescuing them from their enemies. That's Psalm 118. They overlooked his presentation of humility and they made this bold proclamation that he's coming to deliver from Rome physically. Now it's interesting to note here, right, that in our text there's no record of Jesus trying to disallow this He's not rejecting their claim. He's embracing it, even though they don't fully understand it. He's embracing it because his hour had come. He is pushing the envelope. Because if you notice in Matthew 21, 14 and 16, look at at 14 and 16 real quick. This is in the temple. What is Jesus doing? He goes there and he cleanses the temple. He talk about pushing the envelope, right? He comes and enters into his house. As it says in verse 13, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. Whose house? He's talking, he's calling the temple of God his house, right? My house you have made into a den of robbers. And so he comes and he cleanses them. But look at 14, 15, and 16. And the blind men and lame came to him in the temple public as you can get and he heals them verse 15 but when the chief priests and the scribes wonderful religious leaders saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done and the children were shouting in the temple notice what they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David they became indignant why he says in verse 16 notice please and he said to him the the leader said to Jesus do you hear what these children are saying and Jesus said to them yes have you never read Psalm 8? <laughs> right, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. You see, he's not now reluctant to force the issue because Friday's coming, and the purpose of his coming is just four days away, five days away. And so he's pushing the envelope. He's pushing the envelope, and he's coming riding on a donkey, identifying as Messiah. He's allowing their misproclamation to go and ring throughout the city to awaken the religious leaders of Israel to pay attention to him and come. He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He goes there and allows the children to praise him and doesn't shut them down. It's fascinating. All that to to force the issue. He has come to die. It is God's will to go to the cross. The devil wants to keep him from the cross. Let's get this right. God wants him on the cross. The devil wants to keep him from the cross. And so he comes in this boldness to force the issue. It's very fascinating. Now, if you remember when they said there in verse 16 of 21, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus doesn't shut them down. Now, you compare that with what Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 20, after they acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Because it wasn't his hour. It wasn't the time. But here in our text, it is the time. Now, notice, as we now got to finish this, in 10 and 11, notice notice how the city is responding to this proclamation in verse 10 when he had entered jerusalem and all the shouting and commotion all the city was stirred saying who is this the word stirred is too it's too it's too too settled (laughs) stirred it's a word it's used to speak of something that has been shaken by an earthquake right it's not just stirred like you're stirring your coffee these people are rattled to the core of their being like they're in an earthquake, like they've been in a tornado, a mighty wind. One translation has it, wild with excitement. That's a little different than stirred, <laughs> right? Or was thrown into commotion. I guess stirring does that, but you know what I mean. They were, they were radically upset because of what they're seeing and they're hearing that this one who's coming, they are recognizing him as the son of David, the promised Messiah. And they say, who is this? As though they don't know who Jesus is, but they want to know more. What, who exactly is this? Well, look at verse 11. He says, and the crowds were saying, and they were continually saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This shows to what depth they understood who he was. Yeah, he, he's, he's at least a prophet. <laughs> he's far greater than prophet. Notice they don't mention where he's born, his kingship. That they, Here's the prophet from Nazareth. He's at least that. You see, they don't fully understand who he is. But let's close our time with this. He is the king. He is the king. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He is the one promised in Daniel two forty four. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That was, that was a vision given to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreted by Daniel. That's, that statue, you remember the head of gold and such. There is a coming kingdom the stone that's cut without hands is Jesus Christ, and he's coming to establish that kingdom forever. He is the earth's final and rightful king. A couple, couple passages just to read by you. It's just stirring to me. This ki- In our text of Matthew 21, obviously, is before the cross. He came as the king. He goes and lives as the king. He'll go to the cross as the king. He'll be in the ground as the king. He'll be raised as the king, and he'll be forever the king. In Revelation 15, 3 and 4, it says they sang the song of Moses and the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All the nations will worship this king of Israel, this king of the world, this king of heaven. Revelation 19, fifteen through 16. From his mouth, the, the, the king, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, toward the very last few verses of the New Testament, of the revelation of God. Listen to how Jesus identifies himself to show the continuity of this kingship. He said, I, Jesus, Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Now listen, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. This is toward the end of, the, of the, the new heavens and the new earth is coming after this and he still identifies himself with the Davidic covenant. He's the root. He's the source of the Davidic covenant. He's the source of David and he is the branch. Jeremiah 23. He is the descendant of David. That's how glorious this king is. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He's he's the root and the descendant. He's the root and the branch. This is the one who's coming riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey. He is God's chosen king. But the question remains, for some, is he your king? Are you one of his subjects? Are you in his kingdom? Matthew 18, 3, Jesus speaking. Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 3, maybe more familiar to us. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Regeneration, divine nature is to be... Like a child. God's king came meek and lowly, and those who will enter his kingdom will be like him, of course, by grace, but nonetheless lowly. Look to him, beloved. Look to him. Call on him, those who haven't, call on him to save you from your greatest enemy, and it's not Rome, it's sin. Don't be like the Jews of John 19. When, when Pilate said, behold, your king. But they cried out, no, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? You know what they said? We have no king but Caesar. Let us not be like that. Believers, let us join in the proclamation of verse 9. But with a true understanding and full conviction, let us say, Hosanna to the son of David. Let us praise Him. Let us praise Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your promises that You fulfill. Thank You for Your glory. And I ask, my Father, if there's anyone here who has not bowed the knee to Your sovereignty, to Your kingship, to Your lordship, I ask that You would have mercy upon them and open their heart now to bow the knee to Christ. Let us all, Father, have a renewed conviction of your kingship and your right to reign and rule over our lives and help us to follow you with such a passion that we would shout out Hosanna to the Son of David. You deserve all praise. Help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.